going to be a, a personal testimony how I changed from being a, a fully persuaded uh, billions of years evolutionist into a six day, six thousand year biblical creationist. And I think you'll agree that is uh, quite a transition. I grew up here in uh, Melbourne, had a uh, very solid Catholic background, went to uh, Catholic schools all my life and I simply accepted everything that I'd been taught as uh, most young people do. And I started my medical course at Melbourne University and it didn't really take long for the uh, attractions of the world to get rid of any belief that uh, I had grown up with. Now there are a lot of other things that contributed as well. When I uh, got to uh, study anatomy, the anatomy museum at Melbourne University had this uh, Tasmanian tiger skeleton and I was fascinated by that because the caption stated how remarkable it was that uh, marsupial mammals had followed a completely different evolutionary pathway from uh, non-marsupial mammals but in a wonderful example of what they called convergent evolution the Tasmanian tiger skeleton was very similar to the skeleton of a dog. Now, uh, I just accepted it without question. There it was in the, uh, the museum. But when you think about it, the whole idea of convergent evolution, things happening by random chance and still uh, putting out the, uh, the same structures is uh, really a very, very way out suggestion. For example, all uh, animals have got these... Uh, seven cervical vertebrae. Well, how could uh, two creatures that have followed a completely different evolutionary pathway end up with the, uh, the same structures? Now, I'm going to say a little bit more about that uh, later. We learnt about, uh, in biology, the supposed tree of life, how every living thing supposedly came from the first cell many billions of years ago. And it was taught as fact, it was in all the textbooks, and I didn't have any reason to question it. And uh, my transition was, first of all, to an agnostic, but later a, uh, a fully persuaded atheist. And uh, finally, I graduated. I did my hospital residency in uh, Ballarat Base Hospital, and that's where I met Heather. And uh, we got married, and she had similar atheistic views to me. And uh, we had no intention of ever darkening the door of a church for the rest of our lives. But after four years and, uh, and two children... She incredibly became a Christian through the uh, ministry of her sister, right out of the blue. Well, that absolutely, that didn't rock the uh, marital vote, vote very much because as far as I was concerned, I'd been there, I had done all of that and uh, I reasoned that uh, women need that sort of crutch because uh, small children can be very stressful. <laughs> And as you all know, we men cope a lot better under pressure than women, so we don't really need religion. And I didn't mind looking after the kids uh, on Sunday while she went to church. As James uh, mentioned to you, I was uh, in the Navy as a medical officer. I joined as an undergraduate. And finally, we got the job that we were after, a, uh, a posting to uh, England, a three-year exchange posting to work with the, uh, the Royal Navy. And we went off to England with, by this stage, three very small children. And I'd been posted to uh, HMS Dolphin in Hampshire to work in uh, diving and submarine escape. I was the senior medical officer of the submarine escape training tank. The, uh, the British had built this 100 feet high, 18 feet across cylindrical uh, tank with a mock-up submarine compartment in the bottom 
to teach people how to get out of a, a sunken submarine. And uh, that was my job while I was there. And Heather eventually joined a, a local Christian group and they were a fellowship group that met in houses and uh, a lot of books started coming into the house and I'm a bit of an avid reader and I would flip through these books and uh, uh, read them mainly for idle curiosity but uh, I also sneaked a, a peep at the Bible because uh, I wanted to have the, uh, the ammunition that I knew I had to counter what all of these people <coughs> actually believed. But eventually uh, the uh, men of the fellowship, and there weren't very many of them, they were mostly women, they were d- decided to uh, do an outreach night on a monthly basis to the heathen husbands of uh, whom, <laughs> whom I was the chief, <laughs> as Paul would have said about being the, uh, the chief Pharisee. We lived in a Navy area and most of the other unbelieving husbands were uh, Navy people and uh, I was probably the most senior and I was the spokesman for the uh, unbelievers. And uh, I went along to these film nights just to be sociable. Uh, they were very patient, they were very courageous. I thought some of the films that they, uh, they showed were just ridiculous. They uh, suggested that dinosaurs and people had actually lived alongside each other and I thought that was the most stupid thing that uh, I had ever heard and, uh, and I didn't have any hesitation in saying so. But finally, uh, just before we were due to come back to Australia, they showed a film on the resurrection of Jesus. It was a, uh, a modern-day film, uh, a courtroom scene, an inquest, where they examined whether Jesus had really risen from the dead. And uh, I had thought a bit about crucifixion from a medical perspective. How does somebody who is crucified actually die? And I didn't have any doubt that the, the guy on the, the cross who was executed by Roman soldiers was dead. I didn't have any doubt whatsoever about that. And uh, I found myself in the discussion that followed the film taking the Christian party line that uh, I thought, yeah, it was made uh, pretty good sense that uh, this guy had actually risen from the dead. And I got home that night and uh, Heather said, well, uh, what did you think of it? So I told her and she said, oh, you're a Christian. And I said, no, 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 I'm not a, uh, a Christian. I don't believe the way you do. But I said what I now know to have been a prophetic statement. I said, if you were to die tonight, I would keep reading your books because maybe one day it will come to me. With a a Catholic background, I had never heard of people having uh, conversion experiences. That would have been uh, quite unfamiliar to me. So uh, anyway, the the next morning I got up. uh, I really had nothing much to do at work. It was just a week or two before we were due to come home. And uh, I had a, an absolute dramatic revelation of the truth. I was in the shower. It was a uh, Damascus Road experience. The uh, voice of the Spirit of God spoke to me and assured me that it was all true. And I was transformed in a split second from being a non-believer to a believer. And uh, say praise God for that because, uh, you know, uh, I, I am just so grateful to the men of that fellowship who were bold enough to, uh, to outreach to uh, the unbe- unbelievers, you know, and, and they copped a lot of uh, opposition and, uh, and scorn and yet they persisted in uh, reaching out and uh, I'm going to be eternally grateful to uh, those guys for what they did. Anyway, I thought I'd better start reading the Bible because I didn't really know too much about it <coughs> and uh, I started at page one, as you do, And I didn't get very far before I realised that uh, what it said 
was completely different from what I had believed and what I had been taught. And it seemed to be saying that creation was only a few thousand years ago. And uh, of course I knew that it was billions of years ago. But I read it over and over again and I couldn't make the, uh, the scripture say anything else. But for the first time in my life I knew with absolute certainty that God was true. And therefore I knew the Bible had to be true because of God's integrity. Because uh, he doesn't lie, he doesn't deceive. So I started asking people in the fellowship that uh, Heather attended uh, how to resolve this conflict. And all I got was uh, unsatisfying theological explanations that really didn't make any sense to me. And finally I found somebody who suggested that there was a book that I should read. And it was this one. He lent it to me. It was called The The Genesis Flood. And I read it and everything fell into place. I could see from that book that uh, the flood of Noah held the answer to all the, uh, the conflict that I had. And we came back to Australia a couple of weeks later. I bought myself a copy. It's a bit old now. It may even be uh, out of print. It was published in the uh, 1960s. But it absolutely transformed my thinking. And it showed how everything that we see in the world around us can be explained by Noah's flood. And it's actually uh, very obvious when uh, it's pointed out to you. It's probably one of the most significant Christian books ever written. And uh, I started looking at some of the things that I had been taught in my medical course. And I was just amazed at how gullible I had been. Now, I've obviously learnt a lot more since then, but I want to talk uh, first tonight about four issues that had directly impacted me in my medical course. Now, they weren't the sole cause of uh, me accepting evolution and becoming an atheist, but they certainly played a a very large part. And the first one was this, the so-called evolution of the horse. I'd read about this in biology books uh, and I simply accepted it as proof of evolution because I'd seen it in a book. And uh, when I was first challenged by this uh, this Christian group in England, I said to them, what about the uh, evolution of the horse? It's a, uh, it's a proven fact. I discovered that it was actually nothing more than one museum curator's personal opinion. An American guy called Othniel Marsh, who'd read Darwin's book, he collected fossils all o- from all over the world, he uh, assembled them in ascending order of size, and he said uh, this was how the horse evolved. Now, uh, some of these first ones in the series are now known not to be uh, horses at all, but uh, it was just his opinion and the exhibit was uh, there to bolster up his opinion. But it doesn't have any scientific legitimacy and nobody these days would uh, defend that progression. And if you think about it, it's quite the opposite of what we actually observe. If we see... uh, Uh, modern day animals that are represented in the fossil record invariably the fossils are much larger than the modern day ones and here we've got this supposed evolution of the horse where it goes from small to large whereas uh, everything else we see goes from large to smaller so it really doesn't make sense it's quite the reverse but you wouldn't know that you wouldn't know that that's not how it happened if you read this sort of thing in a textbook which you do a professional artist can make it look very, very impressive. And uh, if you're a, uh, a biology student, you'd, uh, you'd read that and you'd be quite impressed by it. 
Now, it wasn't actually fraud, it was just a bloke's imagination, but a godless world was only too willing to believe it, and it got into all the biology textbooks. Nowadays, of course, uh, they wouldn't uh, say that it uh, represents truth. This guy said the family tree of the horse is beautiful and continuous only in the textbooks, but uh, certainly not in real life. But there it was in the textbooks, that was enough to convince me as a student and who knows how many thousands more than me were taken in by this sort of thing. The next one though is uh, much more disturbing. This is uh, in embryology, we were taught about these uh, embryos, so-called Haeckel's embryos. Haeckel was a German embryologist, Werner, uh, one of uh, your uh, people, but... uh, He had met Darwin and he'd embraced his uh, evolutionary theory and Haeckel made the point, or this was his idea, and he produced these drawings, that all embryos at the same stage of development look very much the same. And uh, he said that because he said, we all follow the uh, same evolutionary pathway. And I never questioned this either. Uh, All these drawings were in all the textbooks. But a few years ago, a British embryologist by the name of Michael Richardson repeated Haeckel's experiments and he took photos. And these are the photos and he showed conclusively that uh, Haeckel had faked his drawings because the photos don't look anything like the drawings that uh, he had put up. And uh, Richardson wrote a letter to the London Times and he said this. He said, uh, this is one of the worst cases of scientific fraud. He said, it's shocking to find that somebody one thought was a great scientist was deliberately misleading. Said what Haeckel did was to take a human embryo and copy it, pretending that the others looked the same at the same stage of development. They don't. He said these drawings are fakes. And the fake drawings supported Haeckel's idea of what was called embryonic recapitulation. That was the idea that all embryos go through the same fish stage because supposedly we all came from the sea. And I was taught that even though it's actually been discredited for about 50 years. In fact, a uh, a biology book of the time by a bloke called George Gaylord Simpson said it's now firmly established that development does not repeat evolutionary history. And that's a book published 50 years ago in, uh, in biology. And of course, it's quite obvious that it doesn't. It simply follows the program uh, written in its DNA. It's got nothing whatsoever to do with uh, evolution. And uh, if you think about the uh, uh, a, a parallel example of an architect who draws up the, uh, the plans for a house, uh, one architect might, might draw up plans for a, a basic three-bedroom house, another one might uh, draw up plans for a two-storey, uh, two five-bedroom, uh, very swish place. And the plans are completely different. They are what the architect has decided the house is going to look like. But when the, uh, uh, when the graders come in and, uh, and clear the block, you wouldn't really know the uh, difference at that stage. Even when they pour the concrete slab, you probably still wouldn't know the difference. But then the houses start to take shape according to the architect's design. And it's the same with embryos. They take shape according to their DNA. It's got nothing to do with evolution. So the drawings were proven to be fraudulent at least 20 years ago. His concept was known to be false 
at least 50 years ago, but amazingly enough, it's still being taught in schools. This question was on the uh, 2012 New South Wales Year 12 Biology paper. It says the diagram shows different embryos at the same stage of development. How do they provide evidence for evolution? And the answer they're looking for, of course, is the embryos have structures that look similar. So if you're a parent with children or grandchildren in the, uh, the school system, then this is the sort of thing they're still being taught even though it's been discredited for 50 years. So uh, you need to realise that this is what your children are still exposed to. The next one was uh, a story about the peppered moths and uh, many of you would have uh, seen this in a textbook and I read it as a student and I thought it was a, uh, a wonderful story, a classic example of evolution in action. And the way uh, the story goes, there's a moth in England that occurs in two different forms, a light form and a dark form. And after the Industrial Revolution, when the uh, trees got covered in soot, the dark one was more camouflaged on the trees and the light one was more exposed. So the light one got picked off preferentially by the birds. And so there was a change in frequency from light to dark. And it made uh, perfect sense to me. But a few years ago the experiments were repeated and it was discovered that they could not get the same results as the original guy. And uh, it turned out that they couldn't find any evidence of moths uh, significantly resting on trees during the daytime. So what about these uh, photos that uh, were purported to show this change in frequency from light to dark? Well, it turned out that the photos were dead moths glued onto pieces of tree bark and then photographed. And the video clip that accompanied it was uh, laboratory bred moths taken out into the forest, shoveled onto uh, trees and the birds came down and had a picnic. So um, it really wasn't genuine scientific investigation at all. It was uh, made, up, uh, made up stuff to go along with the idea that the fellow had originally had. He didn't get his, uh, his thoughts from evidence, he got the thoughts and then he fabricated the evidence to uh, support it. But it's still being taught as evidence of evolution in action. The fourth issue was that of what, we call, what were called vestigial organs. And there used to be a whole list of them after uh, Darwin there were, we supposedly had a hundred or more useless organs, supposedly leftovers from our evolutionary past that we uh, no longer needed. And of course, they've all been dropped off the list uh, progressively as a vital function has been found for all of them. So nobody anymore talks about these vestigial organs. But the foremost one was uh, the appendix and uh, tonsils and abenoids were uh, also included in that. And uh, even my favourite anatomy uh, textbook had mention of these vestigial organs. But of course the appendix is now known to have a vital function. And there was a, a prize won only a couple of weeks ago put out by Sydney University. This little girl won it doing a, a project on the appendix. And uh, she used her little sister as her model and she painted the, uh, the, the gut and the appendix on her little sister's uh, tummy. 
this girl happens to be the granddaughter of a, uh, a Nobel Prize winner, the guy who uh, discovered the link between Helicobacter pylori and uh, stomach ulcers, but uh, that's beside the point. But the appendix is now known, of course, to have a very vital function. Uh, and there was a recent article claiming that it must have uh, developed by convergent evolution at least 18 times. Now, think about that. Random chance produces the same thing in different uh, species of mammal 18 different times. I mean, how amazing really is that? And uh, you still see, in fact, they said more than 30 times, but the guy who uh, was quoted in the article actually reduced it to about uh, 18. But uh, even so, 18 is, uh, is way out. You uh, certainly couldn't believe that. But uh, you'll still see this in uh, textbooks about vestigial structures. And here it says, horses use their appendix to break down cellulose plant walls. Ours has no function. Does that mean ours lost its function as we evolved? Well, no, it doesn't. But uh, you still see it in textbooks and these old ideas die hard. The average person does believe it when uh, they see it in a textbook, and I certainly did. So they were four teachings that really impacted me in my university days. There was the horse, and that was just fantasy, the embryos, which were fraudulent, the peppered moths that were fabricated evidence, and the vestigial organs, which really were, were foolishness, because just because you don't know the function that an organ has, it doesn't mean it doesn't have one. It, uh, it certainly does. There's now a fifth one that we could add to that, although I wasn't taught about it then, and that's the idea of junk DNA. You know, we're supposedly full of this junk DNA left over from our evolutionary past that now has no function. And uh, junk DNA is also disappearing fast, just like the others. So, five completely unsubstantiated beliefs all taught in the uh, medical course at uh, Melbourne University when I went through, and they've all got the same common denominator. And that common denominator is belief in evolution, and they are all completely wrong, but in many cases they are still being taught and believed. So if science is supposedly about truth, how can anybody justify that sort of thing? They can't. And there must be thousands like me who believed a nonsense theory on the basis of scientific fraud and ignorance. And the passage of time and the march of science have certainly not been kind to evolution. In fact, it has hindered scientific development. Now, I'm going to consider evolution in more detail in the next talk after this, but I'm going to spend a little bit of time now on the age of the Earth, because without the millions and billions of years, evolution would be impossible. But I thought I'd have a little break here for questions. Helps me to relax, helps you to relax. Anything uh, that you would like to ask on the basis of what I've already uh, uh, put up there. Anybody got any uh, questions on that? Yes. I would like to know what is the function of What? Yeah, it's, um, it's a reservoir particularly for uh, good bacteria if you have a, a bowel upset uh, and you uh, get rid of the, uh, the good bacteria that are in your bowel, it will recolonize it for you. So that's one of its main functions. Okay? Yeah, well, 
It's, al- it's also one of the organs, though, that you can lose. Now, uh, you, c- you can uh, lose it, you can have it removed, and you can function uh, pretty well without it, but it's not an organ that has no function. All right? And the same goes for tonsils and adenoids. They're not organs that have no function, even though you can cope without them. You can cope without your spleen, even though it doesn't have no function. A lot of people lose their spleen for a variety of reasons. So there are organs that we have that do have a perfectly good function in the whole body, but you can still live without them if you have to. So what is the active Sorry? The, the, the main one is, is as a reservoir of uh, good bacteria to recolonise your bowel after a bowel infection. That's the main one. Yeah. Is there such thing as a pepper moth? Oh, yeah, the, yeah, oh yeah, there is. There certainly is that, uh, that moth, but what the guy purported to show didn't really exist. Yeah. The, moth is, the moth is real. Mm. Yep. Sorry, sorry, I didn't catch that. But I've read that as early as 1874, Hakel's peers and his own yes. university yeah. discredited Yeah, work. yeah, well, he but was... How does, if his own university discredits it, yeah. the management should persist yeah. um, as far as that in Texas? Yeah, and I mean, that, that comment for anybody who didn't uh, hear it, even shortly after Hakel put out those drawings, nearly... Uh, a hundred years ago, his own university were questioning the, uh, uh, the actual accuracy of them, but uh, he managed to get away with it, and the textbooks published it, despite that. Mm. Okay, all right, well, we'll uh, move on to the next section. <coughs> I'm going to have a look at uh, two branches of science, geology and astronomy, and just show you why they don't support the millions and billions of years that would be an absolute requirement for evolution to be true. I had a, uh, an experience earlier this week uh, at Bendigo University. There was a lady who was doing uh, a bit of heckling, and she made a couple of points that I, uh, I took on board at the time, but I don't think she was actually right. She said, you shouldn't go um, uh, quoting from... Um, junk newspapers uh, for scientific uh, facts. You should go to the, uh, the, the publication itself. And I thought about that, but uh, really most people get their scientific information from the press, don't they? They get it from the paper or the media. Most people don't go and read the <coughs> original paper. She also said that uh, the nature of science is that it self-corrects. And to a, a, an extent, it does. It, uh, if it uh, puts up a, uh, a postulate, then uh, later on, uh, if that proves to be wrong, it will change it to uh, some extent. But it's a bit like the uh, retractions that you see in a uh, newspaper. You know, if the newspaper puts out something that's uh, not quite true, the um, disclaimer is only a little paragraph on page five. So people remember the original, but they don't really see the disclaimer. 
and uh, probably about 10% of major scientific articles actually subsequently uh, get withdrawn. But the average person doesn't know that and the media don't comment on the paper that gets withdrawn. They commented on the original one. So I think it's fair to, uh, uh, to use the media as a source of some information because that's what most people do. But anyway, uh, before I uh, talk about those, I'm going to talk about the difference between the two branches of science. And because you've had creation speakers here before, you've probably seen this slide before. But operational science is the one that we uh, think of when we uh, use the word science. Uh, our everyday technology, our transport, our modern medicine, all of those things come under the heading of operational science. And the Bible doesn't have any problem with operational science. There's nothing in the Bible that conflicts with that. But historical science is very different. It's all about what happened in the past when nobody was there to see it, and it's very, very different. And even the best scientists can be completely wrong. They can be an expert in that field, but they can be completely wrong with how things got to be the way they observe them to be. We're not saying, of course, that we can prove the Bible is right or the scientific establishment is wrong, but we can only suggest to you that the biblical story is much more consistent with the evidence. That's really what we do at Creation Ministries. We try and show people that the Bible's account is more consistent with the evidence than the conventional scientific account. And I'm going to have a look at uh, Grand Canyon for a start. This is the classic example of these uh, rock layers that uh, supposedly were laid down one on top of the other over millions and billions of years. And if you looked at it uh, uh, at first glance, that would seem to be a possibility. But when you look more closely, the evidence doesn't seem to support that. Because you look at it and you see that there are these sharp interfaces between the layers. And those interfaces can go for hundreds of kilometres and you don't find any soil or vegetation in between the layers. So it seems very unlikely that they could have been sitting there for millions of years waiting for the next layer to come on top of them. And when you compare them with the top layer and you see how irregular the top layer is because that's exposed to wind and rain and erosion, but all the bottom layers have this uh, sharp interface. So they don't have any of this erosion. So how could they have been sitting there for millions of years waiting for the next layer to come on top of them? The evidence doesn't really support that. And there is plenty of evidence that layers like this can be laid down very, very rapidly and canyons can be cut very rapidly, not over supposedly millions and billions of years. We usually uh, use Mount St. Helens volcano on the uh, west coast of the United States as an example. It blew up in May 1980 and the eruptions blew away half the mountain and in the course of the eruptions these eight metres of uh, what looked like sedimentary layers were formed in the uh, volcanic eruptions. And those eight metres were formed in just a single afternoon. They didn't take weeks or months or years, just one afternoon. And in the course of the eruptions, an unstable mountain lake formed. Uh, oh, sorry? I was going to say, is that a colour photo? I know the guy's wearing a red shirt, but is that all black? Because yeah, no, I think that's black. I think it is a colour photo. Okay. Yeah, and I think it's a lady too. Oh. <laughs> but, yeah, but anyway, during the uh, course of the eruptions, 
an unstable mountain lake formed and later that uh, lake gave way and a whole torrent of mud and water came down the mountainside and it carved out what they call Little Grand Canyon. And uh, it did that in the space of just 24 hours. And if you have a look at Little Grand Canyon, you can see these layers in the side, a bit like we see in the uh, other canyons, and the little creek down the bottom, which is the uh, leftover of the uh, water flow. And uh, people actually saw this happen. And this sort of uh, canyon formation has been seen to happen many times. So it seems quite reasonable to uh, assume that other canyons that we didn't see being formed might have formed similarly in a very short space of time. And uh, there is uh, other uh, <coughs> evidence of how canyons form like that. <coughs> Excuse me. Is there any other evidence of rapid formation of these things? Yes, there is. Uh, we often find tree trunks, and this is the central coast where we come from now, where you see these tree trunks going through uh, many, many layers. And uh, that the layers couldn't have been waiting there for millions of years for the next layer to come on top of them because the tree trunks would have rotted. And you see this very commonly in coal seams. You see these uh, uh, examples of uh, curved rock. Now, you can't bend rock very easily once it's hardened into rock. So it really has to have been soft sand so that it's bent uh, while it's still soft and then hardened. Here's another example, and there's a couple of climbers there to uh, show you uh, the size. You can't bend rock like that once it's been formed and solidified into rock. And uh, so these sort of sedimentary rock layers must have been formed while the rock was uh, still soft, and we often find fossils in those rocks. And we find those fossils actually on top of the highest mountain ranges. We find them uh, on top of Mount Everest and the, uh, the Matterhorn. They're topped by sedimentary rock. Ah, thank you. <laughs> I always forget to uh, get it at the beginning. I, I usually forget to drink from it when it is here. But they are topped by sedimentary rock. And that rock has got fossils in it. And those fossils are marine fossils. There are shellfish in those rocks on top of Mount Everest. So the event in the Bible that would suggest how they might have got there obviously is Noah's flood. The mountains were below the uh, water surface. That's where they got the uh, fossils in them. Then they, uh, they rose as the water levels uh, ran off into the oceans. So it's much more consistent with what the Bible says, not the uh, conventional scientific explanation. Coobapedi is a town in uh, South Australia and uh, a lot of the town is uh, underground. When the underground rooms are dug out at Coobapedi, the uh, excavated sand is found to be full of shells. So there in the middle of the South Australian desert, that's also been underwater with uh, marine fossils. And all this evidence is fully consistent with Noah's flood, but mainstream uh, science denies that that flood ever occurred. Let's just have a look at astronomy next and we'll talk about comets. This is a, uh, a shot of Halley's Comet. And comets are heavenly uh, bodies that go in an elliptical orbit around the sun. With every flypast of the sun, they uh, lose a bit of their mass, it gets burnt off. And it's generally accepted that short period comets like Halley's, which goes around once every 76 years, uh, 
They lose mass as they go past and eventually they must break up and crash into the Sun or Jupiter or one of the other large planets. And we've seen examples of that in recent years. It's generally accepted by the uh, secular establishment that short period comets have got a maximum lifespan of about uh, 10,000 years or less. <coughs> now, how can you have uh, comets up in our uh, sky if they can only last less than 10,000 years and yet our solar system is supposedly 4.5 billion years old? Well, uh, a Dutch astronomer by the name of Oort suggested years ago that there must be somewhere out there that's referred to as the Oort Cloud, a place that is uh, generating comets and firing them into our solar system so that we can now see them because comets are only, may only be a matter of thousands of years old and our solar system is believed to be billions. Well, uh, the Oort Cloud has never been observed uh, it can't be seen with the, the uh, Hubble Space Telescope or anything else that's up there. It is a pure hypothetical. Even Wikipedia talks about the Oort York Cloud as a theoretical place. But uh, you sometimes see a little bit different in uh, newspaper or uh, scientific articles. There was one, um, <coughs> three years ago, a comet called Ison that was discovered by amateur Russian astronomers, that was in 2012 and uh, that they, uh, they gave it its name and most of them are unknown before they appear. But this is what the, uh, the writer said about Comet Ison. said, observations determined Ison to be a long duration comet making its first visit to the inner solar system from the Oort cloud. Now observation didn't determine that at all. That's belief, not observation, that, uh, that determined that. But here we see from the Oort cloud. And the report goes on to say, the Oort cloud is a region of interstellar space halfway to the next star system containing icy debris and frozen remains left over from the formation of the solar system. So not Oort cloud is believed to be. I mean, Wikipedia even said it's theoretical the Oort cloud is a region of interstellar space. And have a look at this, I couldn't believe that, 4.567 billion years ago. Now, where did he get such precision? You know, uh, three decimal places. <laughs> so, but as I said, the average person doesn't read scientific articles. They would read the science writer's take on the scientific article. And if I'd read that as a young man, I probably would have simply accepted it because I didn't know any different. You'll remember last year's uh, comet landing, uh, which was fantastic operational science. But there were some other comments in newspaper articles and other things about uh, how, well, I'll, I'll get on to that in a moment. There were some other comment, uh, comments and they were, one of the things they were looking for was information about the beginnings of life on Earth. And this uh, article in the Independent News in December last year said, Rosetta has already detected water, methane and hydrogen, findings that could indicate whether comets delivered the vital ingredients of life to early Earth. Now, why do they think that comets might have delivered the vital ingredients of life? Well, comets are known to contain water. <coughs> and... Um, uh, 
Earth is believed to have started off as a hot molten globe after the, uh, the sometime after the Big Bang, and so hot, of course, that it couldn't contain any liquid water. So, how have we got the liquid water on Earth? Well, the thought was that uh, the water might have been brought here by the comet load, comets crashing into uh, Earth and bringing all the water on Earth to Earth. Now, that was a, uh, a serious proposal. Not only that, they said that, uh, uh, and this was from the uh, British uh, Telegraph, comets could have sparked life on Earth, scientists show. This was the article said Japanese researchers made a frozen soup of amino acids, ice and rock and then used a propellant gun to simulate the shock of it hitting a planet at speed. And uh, then they said, after analysing the fallout, scientists discovered that some of the amino acid had, had joined into peptides. Remember, they didn't start with just chemicals, they started with amino acids. And uh, they didn't say how many had joined together, it might only have been two or three and yet you need about 10,000 plus in the right order to make some protein. So it's pretty hard to do that. But that's what they said. And uh, the article went on to say, the experiments reveal how life could have formed on Earth four billion years ago. But the next part said, this finding indicates that comet impacts almost certainly played an important role in delivering the seeds of life to Earth. So the, uh, the possible becomes probable, becomes virtually certain, all on the basis of absolutely no evidence. You know? And there's no evidence of uh, comet loads of water coming here either. And uh, the Earth has got a whole lot of uh, water on it. And uh, I find it amazing that serious scientists could even contemplate that all the water on Earth has been ferried here by the comet load, crashing into Earth. I mean, how many trillions of comet loads of water would you need to fill up all the oceans and Earth? I mean, it is just amazing. And, uh, of course, the Bible tells us that uh, water has been here right from the very beginning. So, which do you think would be the more reasonable view? The, uh, the scientific speculation or the Bible's clear statement that water's been here from the very beginning? And uh, I think that uh, I'll let John McEnroe have the, uh, the last say. <laughs> he said, you can't be serious. And uh, I, I really think it's one of the most amazing speculations that I have ever seen. Can't leave astronomy without a mention of uh, Pluto. Pluto is another example of how you always hear the scientists say how surprised they were. Not at all what we were expecting. They expected Pluto to be dead and lifeless because it's supposedly billions of years old and yet the first photos, they couldn't see any impact craters on it whatsoever. So Pluto looked young. And uh, there was another article only a couple of weeks back. This guy said uh, it's a uh, head-scratcher. They really uh, didn't know what to make of what they were finding. And, uh, but it's no surprise to the Bible believer. The lack of craters suggests that Pluto is young. This writer says about 100 million years, but, uh, but it looks young. So there has to be current geological activity on it and uh, uh, it's too small uh, to be heated from uh, 
the, the interior. So it's no surprise to the Bible believer. And uh, there was an article about Pluto only yesterday. More stuff coming in that is amazing. Uh, the scientists are still being amazed but they haven't dropped their belief in Pluto being old. And uh, the widespread acceptance of an old Earth is actually fairly uh, recent. Now, I'm not going to uh, go... It's uh, five past six, so I think it's time that we had our first break. Uh, I was going to talk about radioactive dating techniques, but that would take a bit of time, and maybe you want to raise that in question time. But let's have uh, any questions on uh, what I've just said, and then maybe we'll have a break for a cup of tea or, uh, or something like that. Any questions on the uh, things that i put up there? Yeah, I'll, I'll come down so that I can hear you. Yeah, yeah. <coughs> Look, uh, when they uh, suggest that there might have been water on Mars, you then see uh, the newspaper caption saying, Life found on Mars. Well, ma- water doesn't mean life. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, they're obsessed with finding water because they believe in evolution. And you can't have evolution if you don't have water. So that's really all it amounts to. But the Bible doesn't uh, say that there can't be water on anywhere else in the, uh, the universe. It doesn't say there can't be life either, but I suspect that there isn't. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. Um, one of the frames referred to, I believe it was looking at the radio program on the ABC, yeah, Science yeah. Friday, 29th of 11th, 2013, about the Oort Cloud. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, do, do any of the young um, uh, people, such as yourself, um, No, we usually put it out to uh, our believers as a, a, an email if there's something significant, but it's very difficult with uh, uh, people like the ABC. Only a matter of um, months ago, uh, our current CEO, Don Batten, was uh, invited to uh, do some comment on the, uh, the ABC, and uh, he was assured that uh, it was going to be live, Right? But when he got there, it wasn't live, you see. And uh, you know, then they uh, they do a recording and they play what they want to play, you know. So so it, it's very very difficult to get the sort of airplay that you would like. Yeah. The ABC are very very adept at not uh, putting forward stuff that they don't want to put forward. Mm. Yep. Yep. Um, the time before last when Halley's Comet came, which was May 1910, it was so bright and so obvious in the sky that my mother was known Halley. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. But on her 76th birthday, uh, that's right. it came around again. It was a fizzer. Yeah. So the time yeah. before my mother's birth must have been absolutely mind-boggling. Yes. Yeah, that, that, that's right. I mean, as, so Halley's Comet presumably is in its uh, downward spiral, really. Mm. Those fossils are tight. Um, we used to work in Nepal. Right. Uh, we didn't go up at the top of Mount Everest, but we were at about 10,000 feet. Right. And they, in uh, Nepal, they said, pick up these little round stones and smash them. 
Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, uh, uh, everywhere you look, you know, you find evidence of, uh, of Noah's flood. Mm. All right, well, do you want to have your break now, James? We'll, we'll be there for uh, questions out there anyway, so...